Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Excuse me, Colossians chapter 3. I could start in chapter 1, but it would be better if I didn't. Colossians chapter 3. While you're turning there, I also want to read to us from Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, these words are powerful words that point us towards you. Words that would make us aware of the brevity of our lives of what is often futility in this world would make us aware of the, the glory that is in Christ, particularly in contrast to those things. This morning, Father, we pray that you would minister to us by your Spirit as your Word is open before us, as we seek to understand what you would tell us in this passage and what you tell us in your word about eternity. We pray that you would capture our minds this morning. We pray that you would minister to us and work in our hearts as we look at these things. We ask for your blessing today in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a simple question. How often do you think about heaven? Author Randy Alcorn, who 
wrote a book uh, called Heaven, quotes an English vicar who was asked what he expected after death. So here's an English pastor who was asked what he expected after death, and he said, with a great accent that I won't try to copy, well, if it comes to that, I suppose I shall enter into eternal bliss, but I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. Is heaven a depressing subject? Before we get into Genesis chapter 3, as we've covered chapters 1 and 2 in our time in Genesis, before we got into Genesis 3 when the wheels come off, I thought it would be great for us to talk about where everything is headed. What is the end of all of this? So that we wouldn't get bogged down, so that we wouldn't lose sight of what is going on in the bigger picture of the Bible. That yes, sin enters in chapter 3, and I'm sorry to spoil Genesis for you if you didn't know that's what happened, but that's what happens. And the rest of the Bible is dealing with those things. And what I wanted to focus on today is not just the fact of sin and not just the impact of sin, but really the ultimate of how God overcomes that sin and what is accomplished at the end of it. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so the title of our message is Heaven for Life meaning the discussion, the thought of heaven, is applicable in our lives now. And so we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at various other passages, but uh, I wanted to just focus a little bit on Paul's argument here in Colossians chapter 3, and we see, first of all, that he is looking for motivation. And by that, I, I mean he's not searching for motivation. He is describing the fact that where we look can provide motivation in the Christian life. Where are we looking? You know, when uh, I was playing baseball and when I, uh, you know, have uh, shown my kids or others how to throw, part of what you, what you tell a child when they're learning to throw a baseball is to look where you're throwing. And you're going to throw where you look, all right, as time goes on that's going to happen. In fact, the other day I was in the backyard and, and uh, I, I found a softball out there and I wanted to throw it up closer towards the bucket. It should go in. And, and uh, so I turned and, and, and looked and threw and I was looking at this spindly little tree that wasn't much bigger than my finger. And that's what I hit. <laughs> I didn't mean to hit the tree. That just happened to be what I was looking at, right? So we, we tend to hit what we're looking at. That's the, the point of that, right? And so what Paul is encouraging us with here is where we are looking is a motivation for us. And of course, he wants us to look a particular direction. And so we ask the question, first of all, what is the Christian condition? What is the Christian condition? Chapter 3 and verse 1, he starts off, If then you have been raised with Christ, and he's going to go on and talk about what that means, what some of the consequences of that might be. But I want to... We, we dare not rush past it. I know it's a short little phrase, and, and uh, there's, there's a whole lot there. I, I don't want us to miss it. That you were dead, and you've been given life. You were dead, and you've been given life. Paul said earlier in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You were dead. You've been made alive. Which, of course, is 
Very similar to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, but also in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's life after this death. And I don't mean death as in my physical body dying. The description that is being described in Colossians 2 and in Ephesians 2 and, uh, and other places is, is the, the fact that starting from Genesis chapter 3, there becomes a, a distance, a wall, a separation between God and man because of man's sin. And he's warped internally and he's changed internally and, and, and we were dead. But we in Christ have been made alive. We've been brought to life. And so he starts off in chapter 3 and verse 1 by saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you have this new life in Christ, if you, if you have trusted in Him and you have, you have found that He has given you a new heart, He's put His Spirit within you, He's given you life that you didn't have before, He's given you the ability to respond to God in faith, that was not there before because of your own hardness of heart. If that's you, if you've been raised with Christ, then I have some things to tell you. He says, uh, secondly, he answers the question, how then shall we live? What's our response? If the situation is we've been made alive in Christ, and we're going to talk more about what that means, but if that's the situation, you have life in Christ, how should we live? What shall we do in light of the fact that we have new life in Christ. Well, his first response that he gives there, he says, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You've been made alive. You've been raised. You've been, you you are with Christ. You are alive with Christ now. So seek the things that are above where Christ is. That's where he's located. That's where uh, the things uh, of him are to be found. And so seek that. I think I may have told the story before about how when we were uh, moved to Russia and we were going through culture shock, and we, everybody deals with culture shock in different ways, and there are different periods. Sometimes you think, oh, life is wonderful over here in this new culture, and then you think life is miserable in this new culture, and the goal is to ride both of those out so that at the end you realize, oh, life is just life in this culture like it was in my culture back home. But as you're going through that process and you're adjusting to that, you begin to crave things from home. And, and different pe- people crave different things. But for me, I remember a, a very odd combination that I wanted Tabasco sauce. And I, I'm not big into spicy food. I mean, I'll, I'll eat spicy food along with the next guy, but it's not like everything is spicy and whatever. But for some reason, I saw Tabasco sauce in the store one time and I bought it because I thought... This tastes like home. And so I would put Tabasco, you know, on my breakfast and on my lunch and on my dinner. And like everywhere was Tabasco sauce, right? Except for one food item, which was the other thing that I was using to adjust. And that's when I saw Snickers in the store. That's right. A taste of home right there, right? It really satisfies. Well, I stocked up on Snickers and I, I ate way too many of those and, and uh, never did mix those two. But, but the, the point is... I'm not entirely a fool. <laughs> the point is, I missed home. And I wanted, I, I was seeking the things that would remind me of home. The things that would bring a taste of home to where I was in Russia. And so for me, I was Tabasco sauce and, 
and Snickers bars. But, but for the Christian, it's something different. The Christian's home is where his Lord is. And so what Paul is saying here is we should seek those things above. Those things from that home, which is your home, which is where Christ is. Seek the things of Christ. The things that have to do with Him. That's the, the first response. There's a second response in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Set your minds on things above. Think about them. What you dwell upon. Think about those things. Now, when he's saying the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth, we need not to misunderstand what he's saying here. He's not saying that matter, physical, is bad and spiritual is good. He's not saying that. He's not saying that the, the things that you see around you are bad and the invisible spiritual ideas and things are good. The Bible will never tell us that. Because we have already read in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, when God made all the visible stuff, what did He say about it? It's good. It's good. Okay? So we need not to make that false distinction that that somehow here Paul is saying, if it's physical, it's bad, like this body is physical and it's bad, and, and life is going to be better, and everything's going to be better when I have put off this physical, and now I'm just a, a, a spirit or something like that. It's not what he's saying. When he's talking about earthly things, he's talking about sinful things. And he's going to give a couple of lists in even this chapter right here where he's going to tell us what he means by the sinful things, the, the things that are uh, that he characterized us before we became Christians. The things we lived in. The sinful behaviors that we followed. The kinds of things that we went after that were contrary to God. That's what he means by earthly things. He doesn't mean your job. He doesn't mean your garden. He doesn't mean your physical uh, uh, relationships or relationship with the physical world. He's talking about sinful versus heavenly things. And so when he's talking about heavenly things or the things that are above, he means those thoughts and those, those attitudes and those actions in our lives that are godly and they are consistent with the Lord's character. He's talking about our, everything about us that's honoring to Him that's geared that direction towards Him. And so he says we are to set our minds on those things, not on earthly things. He's not saying forget about your job and, and show up late because you're busy praying in the morning. right? Get up a little bit earlier and pray and be done praying so you can be to work on time. right? He's not saying that because it's in this physical world, it's bad. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's, he's contrasting that which is characterized by Christ's behavior, by His own character, Versus the character of our lives uh, of sin on this earth, particularly those that described us uh, before we became Christians. So, how do we do that? How do we set our minds on things above? Well, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul is addressing a very similar topic. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fill your mind with them. This is the idea of Christian meditation, which is so contrary to the world's concept, particularly Eastern mystic concepts of, of 
of meditation where you're supposed to empty your mind of everything and you hear from the universe or whatever. The concept, the biblical concept of meditation is that we fill our minds with things that are good and true and lovely and excellent. We fill our minds with the Word of God and we dwell on those things. We roll them over in our minds and, and by so doing we are setting our minds on those things. And it begins to shape our thoughts. It begins to shape our values. We start loving what God loves. So how do we do that very practically? Well, you're listening to a sermon right now. You have your Bible open in front of you. You are hearing about what is true and honorable and just and right even now. So you're obeying this as you follow along and listen right now as we sit under the teaching of God's Word. And so as you go about your week, take this sermon with you. You can find it on the app. You can find it on Spotify. You could go to the website or, you, or, or just think about what you've heard this morning. Roll it over in your mind. Reflect back on what you've heard today. Dwell on that. Think about the implications for your life. Think about the, the encouragement that it might bring in your life or the correction that it might bring. Set your minds on the things that are above. So that's one way you can do it. And of course, this is a huge reason why we encourage you to read your Bible every day. So you can think about the things that are above. Because your default setting in your mind is to think about the things of this earth. To think about sinful things. If you let yourself return uh, to um, just the way things were, that's where you're going to be in your mind. And so we need to be reminded and we need to remind one another to look to Christ. And so, dads, this is an opportunity for you to have conversations even about this sermon with your kids. Parents, talk to your kids about the Lord so that you're setting your mind and they are setting their minds on Christ. So that's... That's the response. That's uh, how we shall live in light of the fact that we've been raised with Christ. Why is that the right response? Why is that the right response? Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in God. Glory. All of our hope is wrapped up in our union with Christ. All of our life is wrapped up in our union with Christ. In Him we died to sin and to the law. In Him we have life. And in Him and only in Him we have the favor of God upon us. God gives us His favor only in Christ. Our whole life is wrapped up in Him. Our whole glorious future is and forever will be wrapped up in Christ Himself. He is our life. And we've been raised with Him. We have life in Him. And so we long to be where He is. We long to love the things that He loves. We long to honor Him in our lives. We want to see that happen. We desire things that are, that are uh, consistent with Him because we love Him. And so it's the right uh, response. It's what we ought to do. We who have died and been raised with Him is to live towards Him. And so we look that direction. And before we continue on in our passage in 
uh, Colossians 3, I wanted to take a, a brief detour and talk about the stages of redemption. I ultimately want to talk about heaven. Before we get to the sin of Genesis chapter 3, and, and it's going to be uh, in the rest of the Bible and all of that, before we get there, I wanted to talk about heaven and, and just kind of fix our minds on that a little bit, because that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, right? That's where we're going to be, and so let's think about it, and let's talk about it, and let's let that be a motivation for us. So the first question there in discussing the stages of redemption is what is man's natural state after the fall? What is man's natural state after the fall? Well, we all know Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the sin that Adam and Eve commit in Genesis chapter 3 is not entirely unlike the sin that we commit all the time. We follow in their footsteps. And so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, okay, so what? What's the result? What does that mean in our lives? Well, Paul says in Titus 1.15, to, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So this sin doesn't just mean there's a strike against our record. This sin has affected us right down to what we value. It's a, it's a defiling of our character. And so nothing is pure. Their minds and their consciences of man in his natural state are defiled, corrupted. And so it's not just a sin. It's not just something that happened. It's not even just something that's imputed to us. It's actually a defilement of our very character. And so Jeremiah will say in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the human heart. That's the, that's the fallen heart. That's what we have is this, this sick heart that's, that, that's deceitful. We can't trust it. We can't be led by our heart. Though the movies will always tell you that, you know, follow your heart, follow your heart. I've read Jeremiah 17, so no thank you. I don't want to do that. And I don't encourage other people to do that because I've also read Jeremiah 17 in verse 9. And of course, uh, Paul's uh, several verse uh, quotation from all over in the Bible in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, and on and on and on. That's the, that's the condition, that's the state of natural man. In short, uh, what's the condition, uh, uh, the natural state of man after the fall? He's a child of wrath. He's living under the presence and the guilt and the tyranny and the penalty of his sin in the flesh. It's not good. That's natural man's condition. So secondly, what's changed for the Christian? That's a description of natural man in his unbelief. What's changed for the Christian? Well, Colossians 2.13, we already referred to you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having having forgiven us all our trespasses. There's life. There's life been given. There's a forgiveness of sins. There's something that has changed. There's a, a force of life been placed within. Or Romans chapter 8 and verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, you still have a problem. Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. God has placed 
righteousness and life within us. Something has changed. So much so that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a, there's a, there's a new creation that has gone on. There's, there's a renovation that has been changed. Uh, something has been changed within us. And we still retain sinfulness and a propensity to sin. We have our flesh still. We still live in this world and we have those tendencies. But we've been redeemed. We've received forgiveness of sins where there was nothing but guilt before. We've received life where there was nothing but death before. We've received His Spirit where He was not before. And so we have these blessings as Christians. So what has changed for the Christian is that now he has received redemption. The guilt and the penalty of our sin have been removed. But that, that guilt that we had because of our own sin and because of Adam's sin imputed to us, the, the guilt that we had before God has been wiped away because of what Christ did on the cross. By, by faith in Him, our sin is, is taken from us. The guilt no longer remains. That is, no longer ours to pay for. The guilt and the penalty both have been taken from us. We who deserved death because of our sin, we who deserve the judgment of God, have instead received the blessing of acceptance with God because of what Jesus did. He's given us righteousness before God by faith in Him. His righteousness granted to us. Our sin placed upon Him and punished in Him. And so we stand there with that change of record, but also having been made alive inside. What has changed for the Christian? The guilt and the penalty of our sin have been removed. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But sin is still present. I don't know if you knew that. You look at your spouse and see there's still sin present, right? Your spouse is looking at you and recognizing the same thing. We still live in this context where sin is still present. Though those things have happened, though we are a new creation, it's not finalized yet. Our flesh remains. We are a new creation, but it's not been completed at this point. That raises a third question. What happens at death? What happens at death? Well, there's another change that happens, isn't there? Paul would say in Philippians 1.21, he understood that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. That's a glorious, blessed thing to continue on in this life. But to die is gain. There's, there's something more glorious. There's something even, even more wonderful, he would say. He, he declared that his, his preference was on the dying side. He said in verse 23 of that same chapter, My desire is to depart, and, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Says Paul, who bore the scars of the beatings and the stoning and the, and the shipwreck and all that kind of stuff. And he knew how hard life was, but, but he, he, he was so committed to, to serving Christ in this life and to serving you and me, because he did serve you and me, didn't he? And he was so committed to that, that he was willing and he was happy to continue in life. But all things being equal, he would prefer to be in glory with his Lord. Death would be even 
better. And he would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, we would rather be away from the body than at home with the Lord. He who understood so well the truths that we're talking about would rather be there in glory. That would be gain for him. Because he would be with Christ in his, in his presence, not just internally, not just been, having been united with him in his inner man, not just having received his sins being uh, dealt with in Christ and receiving the, the, the righteousness of Christ granted to him so that he has God's favor, and not just even having spiritual life, but there would be a day when he would put off the flesh and the presence of sin would be gone as well. The temptation was for sin would be gone as well. And so he would be in God's presence without that physical, sinful life that he was so used to living. He would be in his presence. And so, Christian, a, a, a question for you before we move on to our next uh, question that's being discussed here. Christian, are you afraid of death? Why are you afraid of death? One of the things that has been revealed during the last couple of years of suffering and difficulty and threat of disease and death and things like that is it has shown our fear of death. It has revealed uh, how much of a governing position we have given the fear of death in our lives. We who have been made alive. We who have been promised life eternal. Why do we fear death so much? Are we just not thinking about these things and we're not, we're not thinking enough about glory and what it means to be with Christ? Is, is that the issue? or the, Are we so attached to the world and so unattached from our Lord that we will fight to stay here at all costs? That, that wasn't Paul's attitude. That wasn't Paul's attitude. He would rather go home and be with the Lord. But for our sake, he stays and he ministers to live as Christ. Having already experienced the removal of sin's guilt and penalty when we believed, upon the Christian's death, we are finally removed from the presence of sin and the sinful flesh. But there's another question. Is that all there is? That sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? Is that all there is? Because that's pretty wonderful. And that's pretty glorious. And when I say pretty, uh, I mean very wonderful and very glorious. But as it stands now, something is lacking in heaven. I got your attention. At least for the time being, there is something lacking in heaven. From the creation of man in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have had physical bodies. In fact, Adam was a physical body before he was a living being. He was fashioned out of dirt, dust, and then the breath of life was blown into him, and then he became a living being. We have always had physical bodies. And we've always had a physical place to dwell. Since creation, I mean, man is created from the dust. There's an indication that, that, that we are 
we are connected with this physical realm, this physical creation in a powerful way. It's part of who we are. And so we who are used to having physical bodies have always had physical bodies. Now when we die and go to heaven, there's debate amongst theologians about whether we will have some form of physical body immediately after the death. But we won't yet have the resurrection body. Resurrection happens in the future. Resurrection is something to come. And our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died in the last couple of years, they've not been resurrected. They may have an interim body or they, or they may not. I don't know. People discuss. But they don't have the resurrection body that they will have. That we will all have one day. And so, when we die and go to heaven, our, our bodies remain here behind in the ground. Something's lacking. It's not done. And so I ask, is that all there is? Are we disembodied spirits or do we have a, some kind of a temporary body or, or something different? No body for the first time ever. No physical earth to dwell on for the first time ever. No. We await the resurrection of sinless physical bodies in a sinless physical environment. The Bible teaches that the heaven that is now is different from the heaven that will be in the new heavens and the new earth. There is something awaiting. There is something to be completed. Revelation chapter 21 talks about this new heavens and new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our, our ultimate destination, the, the final heaven, the heaven that will be our final resting place, will be a physical realm very much like this one. Scripture often compares that new heavens and new earth, even by its name, to this heaven and this earth. But it will be completely renovated, so there's, there's no sin, there's no corruption, there's no death, there's no suffering. It will be the perfect paradise of God, so glorious that it will make the Garden of Eden look like a shadow. We so often look back at the Garden of Eden, and rightly so. We call it paradise, and rightly so. But it's not the goal, it's the starting point. The new heavens and the new earth will be an even greater, more glorious and wonderful reality than that. And in this renovated, eternal, incorruptible, physical new heavens and new earth, we will be placed, but not as disembodied spirits, but with renovated, eternal, incorruptible and physical resurrected bodies. Philippians 3.21, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Or 1 Corinthians 15, a great passage on resurrection. Speaking of uh, the resurrection of the dead in 15, 42 and 43, Paul says, What is sown, I mean what's put in the ground, is perishable. 
the body that's put in the ground is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. And it is raised in power. Talking about our resurrected bodies. But when will that be? Well, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. And he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. In the end, there will be this great resurrection and we will receive not a temporary body. Not, we won't be disembodied spirits. We won't receive a, a, a broken down sinful body. We will receive bodies as they ought to have been. Fully renovated, alive, and sinless. In the final state, in the, the final new heavens and new earth, redemption will be complete. What started, what started spiritually inside the believer and, and, and takes on a new phase once a believer dies will be finally completed and consummated in the resurrection. When the resurrection, resurrected believer is placed upon, as it were, a resurrected new heavens and a new earth. And we will have life in that place. Sin and the flesh will be entirely removed from us. The new heavens and the new earth, which are free from sin and the flesh, will be created for us as a place to dwell together with God. We will dwell there with Him. We will be in physical but sinless resurrected bodies and will dwell with God in a physical but sinless new heavens and new earth that is compared to the one we live on now. But perfected. New heavens and new earth with no corruption of sin. And so, when, when, when Paul says we are to think about the things above, when, when, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And that kind of language, we need to have an understanding in our minds of what heaven will be like, what the final state will be like. I think sometimes we have such confusion about heaven that we're almost afraid to think about it. We're afraid to talk about it because, I don't know, streets of gold, what's that like? Or am I going to be floating on a cloud with a harp? Or are we going to be able to recognize each other? And, and all this, right, as if we were, as if there's no clarity there's clarity in Scripture. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be resurrected believers walking around on this new heavens and new earth with God there dwelling amongst us. Is it a depressing thought to think about heaven? No. For the unbeliever, this life is the closest they will ever get to heaven. The one who dies in unbelief, this is the closest he will ever get to heaven. For the believer, this life is the closest he will ever get to hell. Take the, the most glorious things, the most God-honoring, most blessed things in this life and amplify them. And that begins to draw a, a rough sketch about what heaven will be like. That's why it's, it's saddened me to see Christians so afraid of death in the last couple of years. You could have been well on your way to that. Like, why are we, why are we thinking like that? 
So what are the implications for life? You can see I'm going to go quickly through these last few verses. First of all, Paul says back in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, kill sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, a sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I, I read through that and it almost sounds like a list of, you know, social media hashtags or something. This is, this is our world. And, and, and not just these are the things that people are seeking in secret, they're glorifying them. This is, this is what the world is all about. This is what our age is seeking after. But, but it's a sampling of what Paul describes as what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the things that characterized your life before you were in Christ. These are the things that, that, that characterize enmity towards God. They're the exact opposites of what Christ's character is like. And we have been raised with Christ. He is our home. He is the one we look towards. He is the one to whom we have turned our attention and our minds. But notice in this list here that sin doesn't just corrupt our actions and our values. It, it corrupts our desires. The very desires that motivate our actions. Among this list here, he lists not only activities, but even evil desire. There's a corruption of our very desires, the things that we want. And that's, that's the behavior of the world. That's the behavior of earthly things. That's, that's the behavior of us before we were in Christ. And so he says, put those things to death. Don't feed those things. Don't dwell on those things. Don't flirt with those things. Recognize them for what they are. Anti-Christ. Instead, feed yourself and dwell on Christ and what He has done. Dwell on this redemption that we have in Him, what He has accomplished for us, what He is like and where He will take us. And we will lose our taste for these things. And we will gain a greater and greater taste for Christ Himself. So kill sin. But first, in order to do so, uh, we need to, secondly, recognize the old life. Recognize the old life. Verse 6, on account of these that he's just listed, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them. These things used to characterize, characterize your life and God hates them. Recognize that's where you came from. Recognize that left to yourself, that's where you would go back. Don't feed on those things. Feed on Christ and what He has done. Feed on the glories of this redemption that we have in Him. The more we see and love Him, the less we love what He hates. And even though we used to walk in that very thing, we begin to hate those things and love Him more and more. Thirdly, nurture the new life. Verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. He says you've put off the old self and its practices. And you've put on the new self. He's talking about your conversion. There was a change that happened at your conversion where you put off the old self, put on the new self. You've been converted. 
But now that new self is being renewed, being strengthened, being fed in knowledge after the image of its creator, he says. In knowledge after the image of its creator. There are brands of Christianity that would have us believe that that knowledge is almost an evil thing. It's something to be scared of. We really just want to we want to know Jesus relationally, not know so much about Jesus, not not worry too much about what we can know, understanding. It's more about relationship. I want to say that's a that's a mistake, and it's a confusion. Because the only way we can know Christ is if we know who He is. The only way we can know Christ is if we know what He has done, where He's from, what He likes. We have to know these things about Him. Or we cannot have relationship with Him. It would be like saying, I, you know, I have a relationship with my wife. I just can't remember her name. Don't know who she is or what she looks like. Would she be pleased with that? I'm all about relationship, but don't tell me anything about yourself. No, that's how we developed relationship, was by talking about one another. We got to know one another. And, and Paul says here that there's a, there's a renewing that happens in the knowledge after the image of its creator. There's a, there's a renewal that happens as we understand, as we dwell upon. And this is one of the reasons we preach the way we do at Parkside. We're, we're trying to hold Christ out in front of us and what he has done so that the more we dwell upon him, the more our new self is being renewed in the knowledge of him. We're being made like him as we see him. And so we preach Christ. As we come to understand that we have righteousness before God because of Jesus' righteous life, that we have the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus' crucifixion in our place, that we have life from death because of Jesus' resurrection, that we have a confident expectation of full and final and eternal resurrected life with our Lord in a perfect and glorious new heavens and new earth. The more we understand those things and dwell upon those things, the more our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And we come to understand that Christ is all and in all. And he's all I want. And so, I asked at the beginning, how often do you think about heaven? Think about heaven more. Wonder at it. Where we are in that place where we, we are face to face with Jesus. Without this barrier of, of, of sin that I have. Without this barrier of temptation or, or blind short-sightedness. Or all of these things, these corruptions of my desires. And, 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 and all of these things that... that, that, that fallen humanity has, even though there's redemption gone on internally, even though there's, there's a new change and a new heart, yet there remains the residue. And that will one day be done away. And I, in a resurrected physical body, will be able to talk face to face with the resurrected Jesus Christ on a new heavens and a new earth. And I will get to fellowship with him without any of those barriers. And so will you, Christian. Can you think of anything better? Can you think of any possible better future? Any possible better place? I can't. Face to face with Him. That's our future. That's our future. That's what heaven really is. And we can play harps if we want to. 
And we can care about gold streets if we want to. We can explore this new heavens and new earth. We can do so with Jesus. And we can fellowship with him face to face. So think about heaven. Think about heaven when we're faced with the hardships of this life. When we're faced with the fear of death. And remind yourself, what's on the other side, Christian? What's on the other side? Think about all that the Lord Jesus has done to secure heaven for us. Praise God for this glorious hope that you and I have. That's the end conclusion. I know things get messed up in Genesis chapter 3 and, 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 and the rest of the Bible is dealing with redemption and whatnot. This is the fruit, the full and final and ultimate fruit of redemption that you and I, Christian, get to experience. Dwell upon that. And if that's not you, if you're, if you're not a Christian, your expectation is very different. You remain a child of wrath. You remain under the guilt, rightly so, of your own sin. And you will bear that punishment yourself. And we don't want you to. Look to Jesus himself. Look to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. Trust in him. And you will find he takes away that guilt and he pays it himself. And he gives you righteousness. And this can be your expectation. Resurrected fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord, the glorious one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these pictures that we have in your word that would point us to the glories of heaven, that it's not some nebulous, uh, something that I can't comprehend. It's just glorious. It's just wonderful. It's just magnificent and amazing, and we will always be amazed. Father, I pray that you would help us to dwell upon this full and final redemption that we have in Jesus, that we would give you glory and that we would develop more and more the tastes of Christ, the tastes for Christ and, and, and not for this world, that we, would, that we would want to look away from the sinful things of this life towards Christ and focus our attention there because there is wonder and joy and peace and life. We are grateful for this redemption that we have in Jesus and we are grateful that this is where it leads. Send us away with these thoughts on our minds and may we rejoice in them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you if you want to pray with them. I want to close this from these, uh, with these words from Revelation chapter 22. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.